now to something a little bit different. If what of it all was a lie? I wonder if you thought about that. Imagine the situation as you go and tell others, as that, as that hymn said to us. If you come across someone and they say to you, you know what, I'm quite happy for it to be a lovely moral message, uh, the Christian faith. I, I'm really quite happy for you to have a friend called Jesus if you really need him. I'm quite happy for him to be a good man even. But you see this resurrection, I'm sorry but that grates with me. I'm sorry but I, I think that's a little bit far-fetched and even unnecessary. Most people, most people don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago or so. That's, that's a, a fairly easy statement to make. When it comes to the resurrection, the major difficulty lies in a, in a, in a kind of modern belief in, in science and, and, and common sense even that, that, that says that, that miracles don't happen. And that's a really big miracle. But that's not a fair way to look at uh, an event, is it, like this? That's, that's, that's biased, I want to tell you. <laughs> what you have to do is you have to investigate the evidence. You, you, you approach the, the death and resurrection of Jesus like you might approach any other historical event that happened. You, you do it with an honest, fair and open mind. There was a big court case in Belfast this week. Some of the details we're not going to discuss but you'll have heard about it. And the judge kept reminding the jury that they needed to wait for all the evidence before they made their mind up. And he also reminded them that they needed to avoid preconceived ideas and biases. And we're going to use those two principles tonight to see what we think about the evidence for the resurrection. We need to look at the, a result that fits all the evidence, not just some of it. And we need to, come, we need, we need to not come to, at the solution with any preconceived notions or biases, such as there's no such thing as miracles. That's a bias, that's a preconceived notion. Let's see what the Bible says claims to have happened. Now, this is going to take a few moments as we go through the timeline of the events, but we, it's, it's a good thing to do. In fact, I have some copies of this if some of you are interested. It might be a little bit small, so I'll help you through this. Friday the 30th, sorry, Thursday, um, yeah, Friday the 30th of March. I put it in this year's dates to help you. It might not have been 30 AD, but it was approximately then. And we have the arrest, trial, uh, death, and burial of Jesus. At uh, approximately 1 a.m. in the morning, we have a, a confrontation in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is arrested. Uh, by 1.30 or so, he's on his first trial with Annas, the former Jewish high priest uh, of, of 16 years, and Jesus is, first of all, inflicted with physical abuse. About trial two, uh, shortly afterwards, we have the, Jew, the current Jewish high priest Caiaphas uh, and the Sanhedrin court. And again, Jesus is, is beaten uh, and bloodied by uh, some more abuse. By 3 a.m., he's imprisoned in Caiaphas' palace. Uh, and he stays there for a while. Then by 5 o'clock approximately, there's the third trial where the Jewish elders this time, including the high priest, the scribes and the whole Sanhedrin, uh, they decide that their best play is to ask the Romans to kill Jesus. By 6 a.m., the fourth trial occurs, and there um, he's again before Pilate, or Jesus is before Pilate, who declares, as we saw in John 18 this week even, I find no guilt in this man. 
By 7 o'clock approximately, he has a fifth trial, a hearing this time before Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. He's got the, the, the jurisdiction over Galilee. And Jesus refuses to answer any questions, so he's quickly returned to Pilate. And by 7.30 or so, uh, we've got the sixth trial. Uh, these are all approximate times, you know that. Uh, but we're making an estimate here as to what exactly time frame-wise would have happened. Trial 6. Pilate repeatedly tries to get Jesus released, uh, and the Jewish leaders continue to object. Pilate has him flogged and beaten beyond recognition to try and satisfy them, but they won't have it. They, they demand that he be crucified. Uh, eventually, Pilate gives in, and he orders that they be that he be crucified. By 8.30 a.m., the, the Roman soldiers take Jesus into the praetorium, into the court, uh, and they mock him, and they torture him, and they drive thorns into his skull. By 9 a.m., Jesus is carrying his own, his own cross. Then the actual crucifixion occurs. The first three hours of his crucifixion between 9am and 12 noon on the Friday. Jesus is nailed to a cross uh, and between two criminals. Uh, we have his first saying and he says, I, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Uh, his clothes are divided among Roman uh, soldiers. Uh, then uh, Pilate puts this sign up in three different languages that says King of the Jews. Then he's mocked by passers-by and they say, oh, he said he was going to destroy the temple. Uh, save yourself if you've saved others, this sort of thing. Later, he, um, even the, the two thieves beside him, they mock him. But, but later, one of, the, one of the robbers beside him um, says to Jesus, um, today... Uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus utters his second saying which is today I say you, you will be with me in paradise then the third um, saying is, is woman behold your son uh, behold your mother as he looks down at Mary and makes this statement looking after his mother uh, as his death um, approaches then the final three hours on the cross from noon until 3pm on the Friday a supernatural darkness falls over the land. We have the fourth saying uh, towards the end of the three hours. It's Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabathani, which uh, means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth saying, I am thirsty from Jesus' lips. He drinks some sour wine. And uh, then the sixth saying, It is finished. We're getting towards the end. And the seventh saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's it. Jesus gives up the spirit and he dies. By 3 p.m., Jesus is dead. There are some reactions to his death. Uh, there's an earthquake uh, physically in the, in the, in the region. Um, there's, uh, there's a personal reaction from the centurion. He says, truly, this was the Son of God. And the disciples and the woman look on and they wonder what's happening. Then Jesus is buried between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., uh, death is confirmed by a spear in his side of a lifeless body still on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea appears and, and he asks for the body of Jesus from Pilate and Nicodemus helps Joseph and they, and they place the body in a tomb before 6pm because that's when the Sabbath begins and that wouldn't have been done. The women watch where Jesus is placed. Do you remember that? And then there's a guard set up by the religious leaders and they ask the Romans to keep an eye on them because they're scared of body snatching. Then on Saturday the 31st we've got a, an easy day to explain because we've absolutely nothing to account. Jesus is in the garden tomb and all sorts of things are happening behind the scenes.
Then by Sunday, the 1st of April, 30 AD, we have the resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb is discovered uh, early on Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they gather spices that they're ready to embalm the body of Jesus. An angel has rolled away the stone from the the entrance, we're told, and and sits on it. And the guards have frozen like corpses. And the woman reaches the tomb, it's daybreak, the sun's coming up, and they find the stones rolled away. And the angel says to the woman, don't fear, he's risen. And says, go and tell the disciples about it. And the woman tell 11 of the disciples uh, and, uh, about the empty tomb. And, and Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb with Peter and John. And Peter and John are, are hastily making their way to the tomb. And they return back then after they've seen the empty tomb. And they leave Mary weeping in the garden. And then later, Jesus appears to Mary and she thinks he's the gardener. Jesus then appears to the other woman. Uh, the temple guard uh, informed the religious leaders of the empty tomb and they're paid off to keep quiet about it. We read about this in Matthew 28. We'll see this in a moment. And Jesus appears to, to, starts to appear to people like uh, Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, late in the afternoon, he then appears to Peter and then... Um, Cleopas and his companion meet with most of the other disciples and Jesus appears to them behind locked doors in the evening and Thomas he's not there and he doesn't believe that they've seen Jesus at all and then later on after after the first day we have more resurrection appearances one week later Thomas and the other ten disciples again behind locked doors they find Jesus appearing to them and and Thomas of course uh, believes this time he appears to seven of his disciples in Galilee at an unknown number of days, an unknown number of days afterwards, and then he appears to the eleven on a mountain in Galilee, and they, get, they receive the great commission from Jesus. Then he appears to five hundred disciples or five hundred believers at one time. He appears to his brother James and to various other people during the forty-day period after the resurrection. And then, as we are near the end of this. Uh, Jesus leads his disciples, the eleven of them, out to the Mount of Olives near Bethany. He blesses them and he's lifted up into the sky, we're told. He's received into the cloud and he disappears. And two angels say, stop staring up into the, into the sky. Uh, this same Jesus that you saw go away will in like, in like manner return. And they, they return to Jerusalem, we're told, with great joy, pleasing God and devoting themselves to prayer. And then the Acts of the Apostles begins. That's a little bit of a timeline of events. If you want, some, want, want a copy of that, I've got some with me tonight. But, but in other words, that, that's the biblical evidence, isn't it? That's the, the claim of the Bible as to what happened uh, in those three or four days of, of Easter weekend and the subsequent 40 days uh, when Jesus appears to certain people. But we have some common objections to this. The first of which is, is there's a question of legend. Is this merely um, a legend that, 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 that we're holding to? Is, is it a big lie that's a kind of nice story, you know, like some sort of fable, some sort of old wives' tale? Some have objected to the empty tomb, claiming that it was the development of a legend rather than, than a historical event. But the empty tomb tradition, if it is one, doesn't have the characteristics of a tradition or a legend. Um, First of all, because it was discovered, the the empty tomb was discovered by women. You just wouldn't have done that. 
Um, common sense tells you that the only reason that, that women were reported as the, as the first witnesses of the resurrection was because it was true. You wouldn't have made that up because women were not given any such rights as they should have been and are today, rightly. They were not trusted at all. Also, um, if, if the story was, was, was fictional and, and legendary, we would expect to see all sorts of flowery things going on, like you find in, in later versions of, of the gospel in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Things like, you know, Jesus coming out of the tomb with glory and power and, and everybody seeing him and, and him some sort of superhero thing, you know, where, 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 where the priests and the Jewish authorities are made to see that, you know, look what we told you, you know. That's the, that's the stuff of legend. But that's not what we see. We see something a bit more quiet. Something a bit more believable. <coughs> These stories didn't come until generations after the event. But the, the original story came from the time when the eyewitnesses were still alive. These accounts were written in the time of those that were still alive. And that's how we know that wasn't a legend. It doesn't bear any of the, of the um, hallmarks of a legend. You wouldn't have women discovering it. And they were written uh, in the timeline of, of the lifetime of the people that were, that were there, these accounts. But did Jesus really exist? I mean, that's another question that people ask. That's a common one. Um, actually, this is, is actually um, not that difficult to, 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 to respond to if someone ever asks you that. I mean, I hope you, I hope you um, engage with people that, that, that are sceptical about the Christian faith. I, I want to try and equip you uh, and equip all of us to do that because that's the way people are, are more and more in, in, in these days. But the first century Roman uh, Tacitus, who, who was not a Christian, okay, is considered one of the most accurate historians in the ancient world. And he mentions these superstitious Christians who suffered under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Okay, so we've got a, a Roman who's not a believer talking about Christians. We also have someone called Suetonius, who's a, a secretary to the Emperor Hadrian, who wrote that there was a man named Crestus, which is Christ, who lived during the first century. So we've got someone else naming him. We also have, importantly, a, a, someone called Flavius Josephus, a, a famous Jewish historian who, who refers to James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. Okay, that's what he says. And we have someone called Pliny the Younger who records early Christian worship practices including the fact that Christians worshipped Jesus as God and were very ethical and included references to a love feast that they seem to call the Lord's Supper. Unbeliever. Okay, this is what he writes. In fact, we can almost reconstruct the gospel just from early non-Christian accounts of people and things that they've written. Um, it goes something like this. Jesus was called the Christ. That's what Josephus told us. He did magic. That's the way they put it. <laughs> Led Israel into new teachings. Was hanged at Passover for them. That's in the Babylonian Talmud. In Judea. That's by Tacitus. But he claimed to be God and claimed to, uh, that he was going to return. Which his followers believed and worshipped him as God. That's from Pliny. I mean, clearly you can have, you could preach a, a, a message just from what the, the unbelieving uh, historical records of people that wrote things down said. So that's very interesting, isn't it? Because there's really very little that you can say to discount the historical reality of a man called Jesus Christ. It's there. Unbelievers and skeptics, I tell you this, have no doubt believing that Jesus was a real person. 
That's not the, the battleground here. <laughs> Everyone re- recognizes that. There's so much historical evidence for it, it's like a given. He was a real person, a, s- a historic figure. It's well attested. It's one of the best well-attested facts there is. In fact, there's more evidence that Jesus walked the earth than Julius Caesar. And nobody doubts that, okay? But it's more of his claims that trouble them, isn't that right? It's it's interesting, right? So people that aren't Christians don't doubt that there was Jesus a man, okay? People that are Christians don't doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, but they have trouble sometimes that he was a real man. You see, it's quite interesting, (laughs) But people recognize that he was a real person. So that's not really a, a, a fight that needs to be made. It's, it's obvious. I mean, anyone with their, worth their salt recognizes that he really did exist as a man. But was he really dead is the next question. Some people doubt that he was really dead at all. The earliest Christian writers after the time of Christ, um, such as Ignatius and others, they, they verified that, that, that he died by crucifixion on a cross. Even atheists, uh, such as German scholar Gerd Ludmann, writes this. The fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. This is an atheist, right? Despite hypotheses of pseudo-death or deception, which are sometimes put forward. Liberal scholar Marcus Borg, he says the same. The most certain fact about the historical Jesus is his execution as a political rebel. In other words, even the atheists are sure that he died, that he was dead. But did he just pass out? That's a possibility, isn't it? Whenever he's on the cross. Did did he just pass out and then sort of come back again? We might call this the, the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. According to this theory, he was kneeled there and, and suffered shock and pain and loss of blood, but, but he didn't die, he just fainted. Okay, from exhaustion, uh, and he was thought to be dead because medical knowledge at the time, you know, wasn't all that, and they didn't really know if he was dead or not, and he was mistakenly buried alive and into the cold tomb, and while he's in the cold tomb, he, he sort of revives himself, and, uh, and uh, he, he, the disciples, obviously, they ignorantly believed that he was actually dead, and, uh, and, and couldn't believe that mere um, resuscitation had revived him, so clearly it must have been a resurrection from the dead. That's the idea, okay? But that doesn't make any sense. That, that doesn't account for the evidence. Because let's think about this, right? So consider all that Jesus has been through. I, I've read it to you. We've got six trials, haven't we? We've got three with the Romans and three with the Jews, Jewish authorities. His body has been beaten. His body has been beaten to shreds by a Roman flagrum. He, he, he's so weak that he can't carry his own cross to the crucifixion site. He's got a crown of thorns on his scalp, okay? He's, he's had spikes driven through his hands and feet. Uh, that, uh, he's been bleeding for six hours. The Romans have thrust a spear into his side. He, he's, he's encased in, in linen and wrapped up with spices, right? And that's a lot of spices by, by tradition. It's like 100 plus pounds of spices. And somehow he's breathed through all that. Somehow a large stone lodged against his tomb's entrance has been pushed aside somehow the Roman guard stationed outside has not noticed I mean see according to this theory right an incredible thing happened 
the, the cool damp air inside the tomb somehow revived him and energised him he split out of his garments he pushed away the stone he fought off the guards somehow broke the seal moved the stone without their noticing it walked half naked and barefoot barely uh, badly wounded through, through a city and appeared to his disciples as the Lord of life You get the picture? It's impossible that a being who has been who has been half dead in a sepulchre creeps out weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, and you know, you know, he. How can you give anyone the impression that you've conquered death and and, and the grave if you're if you're appearing like that? That's not going to happen. Something that lay at the very core of their future ministry. That he rose from the dead. And, he, and he's... That's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not valid. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> but but did, he, did they go to the wrong tomb? That's another option. That's a possibility. Did they go to the wrong tomb? Um, so that suggests that the women who watch as he is buried do not know where the tomb is that, that he was at. That he was buried in. They mistakenly went to the wrong tomb. And after they arrive at the wrong tomb. They're convinced that Jesus was resurrected. I doubt that. These women had carefully noted. Where the body of Jesus was. Less than 72 hours before. This wasn't a public cemetery. That you can lose track of which row he's in. This was a, this was a tomb on its own. Such a dearly beloved one. Laid to rest. They're not going to forget that too quickly. I mean, you have to say, if you believe in the wrong tomb theory, that not just did the woman go to the wrong tomb, so did Peter, so did John, so did the Jews, so did the Jewish Sanhedrin, so did the Romans. In fact, you have to say that the angel appeared at the wrong tomb as well. That takes a lot of faith, I would argue. But was he even put in a tomb? I mean, maybe the dogs at him. Is that a possibility? Recently, some scholars have suggested that. For example, he was either left on the cross and never buried, or he was—he came down and wild beasts were allowed to put him in a shallow grave and destroy his body. But, but really, how could the Jewish authorities, who had tried so long to get rid of Jesus, let the location of his body escape them so easily? I mean, seriously. <laughs> it, it meant a lot to them that he was dead. They're not going to just let that happen, are they? But then maybe he's still in the tomb. I mean, that's another possibility. If if they got the wrong one, he might still be in there. Of course, that's fairly well discounted by what happens afterwards. After he's resurrected, he's... I mean, Acts chapter 4. You remember Peter and John are are, are preaching about the resurrection and the Sanhedrin. They're really having enough of it. And they're like, you know, you need to stop proclaiming that Jesus was resurrected, they said to him. It's been very easy for them to put to bed this idea at that point by producing a body, wouldn't it? To produce it in a tomb or that tomb or any other tomb, I mean, it would have put an end to any of the preaching about the resurrection, but they couldn't do it. The simple fact is they could not. The Centre for Christianity would not have been in Jerusalem a 15-minute walk from a tomb containing his body. It's impossible. The tomb was empty. The seal mentioned in Matthew is clearly broken, and the Jewish... The Jews have actually paid the Romans to keep it quiet because they know the body's not there. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. 
We were in Matthew 28 this morning. We stopped at verse 10. Let's keep reading. Matthew 28 verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You see, we've got a bit of an alternative answer here to what happened. And the, and the, and the, and the, and the Jews aren't happy that the body's missing. So they say, give the soldiers some money and tell them to say that the body's been, been nicked. Justin Martyr in his talk in AD 130 said that the Jerusalem authorities sent special representatives throughout the Mediterranean world to counteract the story with an explanation that his followers stole the body. In fact, that's what we have in Matthew 28. They sent them around the Mediterranean to tell them this is what happened because they knew that was the only way that they could counteract the story. The body stolen means the tomb had to have been empty. We cannot find the contemporary records of any tomb or shrine that became a, a veneration, a place of worship. You know the idea you when know, Mao Zedong uh, in China, he dies, they, they put him in a mausoleum and they go and they worship him. Because the body's there. And Kim Jong-il, you know the one before, who died in, the, in North Korea, and they go in, and they've got him in the mausoleum and they go and they worship him. But you don't find that in the Christian faith because there's no body to worship. There's no tomb that we can go to and say, here's where his body, because his body's not there. You see? There's no body in the tomb. So if we accept the body was not in the tomb, then let's ask the question, was the body stolen? As we've heard suggested by the, by the Jewish authorities. Well... Was the body stolen? The, a stone has been found in Nazareth detailing that Caesar declared disturbing graves and tombs to be a capital offence. So if you're going to do that, you're going to get in big trouble. First problem. Second problem, the disciples would have to have removed the large stone. In Mark, we're told that it's very large. But that suggests something like one and a half to two tons. It's a real beast of a stone. Problem number two, or number three, sorry, they, they, they have to get the grave clothes off the body. Problem number four, they have to carry the body away, all without wakening the soldiers, uh, all without causing attention to a, a, a unit of the Roman guard, which means between four and sixteen soldiers. Now you've got to realise that a Roman soldier's commitment to the cause is absolutely unquestionable, right? If he makes a mistake, he's going to, he's going to lose his head. And they're somehow sneaked out past them. I highly doubt it. And then imagine, and then imagine the disciples saying the following to each other. Let's us band together like a band of brothers. Let's invent miracles and resurrection appearances which we so, never saw. Let us carry this sham to our very death. Why not die for nothing? That sounds like a good idea. Why dislike torture and whipping for no good reason? Let's, let's go out to all the nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce all their gods. And if we don't convince anybody, well at least we have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deception. I mean, is that really what happened? 
Let's make it up and let's die for it. The news media continually shows us that, 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 that lies and conspiracies eventually unravel. That's what happens. Either the opponents uncover the, the truth or someone inside slips up or gives in to pressure. That's what happens. Yet not even one of the disciples, even though they faced horrendous persecution, they were being hung on crosses, some of them upside down, not one of them renounced the death and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, would you die for a lie? Or did the authorities steal the body? Well, that's the very thing that caused all their problems. (laughs) So I can't see that one either. And no matter how much we discuss, as I said, the, the accounts of whereabouts of his, the, the whereabouts of his body, if you look at the, these all become semi-irrelevant when you start to see the evidence for his appearance after he rises from the dead. Was the body switched? That's another question. Same, same answer. Who switched it and how did they manage it? <laughs> And if it was the authorities, then why did they cause themselves so much trouble? And if it was the disciples, how did they ever get out of there? And then they died for a lie. But finally, what about all those witnesses to the post-resurrection Jesus? What about all those 500 witnesses at one time? Perhaps they they were hallucinating. That's another idea that's thrown out to us. But this is beset with problems. First, if you're a candidate for hallucination, okay, that generally means that you are expectant of something to happen. Okay? You generally expect it to happen before you hallucinate that it has happened. Okay? But I want to tell you that the disciples were not good, good candidates for, for an hallucination of this nature because there, there's, there's not one of them is expecting this to be the case. The disciples were depressed and sorrowful and deeply grieved as their beloved leader had been violently taken from them and executed. All four Gospels describe the disciples as not expecting to see the risen Christ. In fact, some even doubted when they did see him. Those are not likely candidates for hallucinations. And then the most um, problematic of all is the formidable problem that we have 500 people and far more who have all had the same hallucination. That's a problem because hallucinations are individual experiences. By their very nature, only one person sees a given hallucination at, a same, at, the, at any given time. They can't be seen by a group of people. You can, I can't make you have an hallucination like my hallucination if we're having hallucinations. It's impossible. It's a personal thing. It's subjective. Others cannot witness your hallucination. And Jesus not only appears to numerous individuals, he appears to groups, and he also appears to skeptics. So we're going to close the case with some indisputable facts. The steel is clearly broken, the body's gone. They couldn't produce it. The stone is moved. The body's gone. The tomb is empty. The body's gone. The guards have left. They've ran for fear. And they, they were committed to their task. The grave clothes remain. Who took them off? There are many witnesses. 
including skeptics like Thomas, like most of the disciples. And people died for this message. I think the case is closed. Jesus not only appeared to his disciples, including Thomas, but also his skeptical brother James and Saul of Tarsus, who of course was incredibly contrary to the Christian message. Why does it matter, you say? Why does it matter? Well, Romans 10.9, we saw this morning, tells us that the resurrection is essential for true Christian faith. And of course, 1 Corinthians, if you read on down in verse 17, tells us that without a resurrected Saviour, our faith is a sham, we're still in our sins, those who died before us are lost, and we are people to be most pitied. I want you to be ready. If you meet someone that says, I'm not really sure about that, you know, I'm quite happy with a, a moral kind of Christian faith, with, you know, miracleless. We have a miracle. A miraculous Christian faith. We have the story of a miraculous Jesus who doesn't just perform some miracles, he performs the miracle the resurrection. And it's so vital. And yet, yet it's not just a matter of belief, is it? You see, it's not just a case of, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that stuff, you know. If you investigate it, it actually stands up. <laughs> it actually stands up. As a historical fact. You don't need to be dealing in the realms of belief even to recognise that. Although we do deal in the realm of belief because that's what what it means to be saved. To have faith. But it is historical. He was a real man. And even the atheists and the sceptics recognised that he died the cross. I love the reasonableness, if that's even a word. I think it is, of our Christian faith. It's rational. It makes sense. It's it's easy to to see the historical reality of this. You're not bagging a dead horse as a Christian. No. This is real. And so we share it with others. Let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer.